Mark chapter 16 tonight, and I'd like to read the first seven verses. And uh, really, out of these seven verses, there are two words that I'd like us to take a moment and consider this evening, and consider what they'd mean to me and you were we to be in a similar situation. I'll tell you something, sometimes you read the Bible and you think, oh, I'm never going to be in the, in the situation, the condition, the circumstances that some of the Bible characters have been in. Then as you go on in life, there's times when you realize that their circumstances really were not all that different from our circumstances. Many of the things that they faced, we face, maybe in a different way, but we face the same troubles and trials and difficulties. And I believe that tonight we can gain an encouraging lesson in truth from Mark chapter 16. Verse 1 says this, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. Look at verse 7 once more. The angel says unto them, But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, as he said unto you. Father, we thank you for this day, and we pray that you, through the power and unction of the Holy Ghost, would stir hearts this evening. Lord, that this time would be redeemed because these days are evil. Lord, that we would use this in a circumspect way. Father, that we would examine ourselves or allow You to examine us. God, that in light of the cross of Calvary, we might see ourselves for who we are. Lord, that we might see You for who You are and be drawn closer to You for it. Lord, I love You tonight. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you read Mark's account of the resurrection, it runs fairly similar to the other three accounts of the resurrection. The resurrection is one of the few events in the life of Christ that is noted in all four Gospels. If you've studied the Word of God, you know probably that the first three Gospels are what we call synoptic. And what that means is that they present basically without... Uh, very much variation, the, the identical narrative concerning the life of Christ. Sometimes the order is a little bit different. Uh, sometimes the details may expand more on this avenue or more on that detail. But they present to us basically the same three uh, or the same set of events in his life in three different lights. But when we come to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is alone unto itself. It is different. It presents to us different narratives, different events in in Christ's life. There's a different purpose in the writing of the book of John than the other Gospels. And so, uh, oftentimes, when we look at the uh, Gospel of John, we will not find the same events found there that are in the other three Gospels. However, there are a few events in the life of Christ that are mentioned in all four Gospels, and the resurrection is one of them. Surely this is an emphasis to you and I that the resurrection is not a triviality, it's a necessity. We talked a little bit about it in Senior Saints on on Friday morning. The Lord let me do it, and and Brother Bill had some other things he had to take care of. 
And uh, I was able to preach, and uh, we talked about the resurrection and the necessity of it. Let me say this, just because I don't think a, a, an Easter ought to go by without us saying it, that I believe that the resurrection is a necessity in a person's doctrinal portfolio. I don't believe a person can be saved if they reject the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I did not say if they're ignorant of it, although I would probably venture to say that even a child has the capability, though he may not understand the resurrection, to believe the resurrection. But uh, I'm aware that little children may have varying degrees of comprehension of certain truths and, and so on and so forth. But I'll tell you this, a, a uh, able-minded person that acknowledges what the Bible teaches about the resurrection and chooses rather to reject it as fable and fairy tale than as the uh, accurate testimony of the Word of God, that person cannot be saved until they will reverse that position, repent of it, and accept the truth of the resurrection. The gospel, or the, the book of First Corinthians chapter 15 gives us the gospel. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you that which I also received, uh, how that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he goes on to name a few other details, which we often leave out of the gospel. The reason being is because uh, everything past the resurrection is often left off in the, in the presentation of the gospel in Scriptures. But those three points, those three facts that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, they comprise the truth, the fundamental truth and substance of what the Gospel is. And if a person rejects the resurrection, says that did not happen, then not only is it a good indication that they're not born again, but it's a good indication they never will be unless they change their mind about that, because a dead Savior cannot save anyone. When you uh, are saved, it's not merely the acknowledging. I don't know why the Lord's having me say this, but I believe He's having me say this. When you get saved, it's not a matter of acknowledging historical events, but it's a matter of bowing the knee before a living Savior. Part of the problem that we have and much confusion that we have in churches nowadays is because we get people convinced that if, if we just rattle off a few historical events and say, do you believe that happened? And they say, well, sure, I believe that happened. And we look at them and say, all right, you're saved. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is not about a principle. Salvation is not about geographical or historical details. Salvation is about a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. You either accept Him or you reject Him. One of the two. There's no middle ground betwixt those two. You either accept Him or you reject Him. And so we understand that the resurrection is a vital point, not only in the, in the healthy doctrinal standing of a a New Testament church, but also as a component of the gospel in the very fabric of what a sinner believes and understands when he comes to know Christ. So it's not surprising that the gospel would be found in all four gospel narratives. But you'll find it to be interesting, not only the things that are missing from some of the gospel narratives concerning various events, but sometimes the things that are uh, added or implanted, or however you choose to say that, the things that are covered in those that are not covered in any of the others. The book of Mark is particularly interesting in this vein of thought. You'll find interesting details through the book of Mark that aren't found in any of the other three Gospels. And uh, part of the reason for that is because Mark was not a disciple, but he was around disciples. And he lived at that time in Jerusalem. We understand that. A good example is he uh, shares with us the, the narrative, the account 
of a little boy. You can see it back in uh, chapter number 14 when they, when they take Jesus down in verse number 51. It says, And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. People have often wondered, why is that in, in Mark's account, but it's not in any other account? I'll tell you why I believe it's in Mark's account, because I believe he was the little boy. The other disciples did not share this detail because the other disciples had already forsook him and fled. But John knows, or Mark knows about this detail because he was there. It was him that night who the soldiers tried to arrest and, and pulled off his outer cloak and left him running for his life. So it's interesting to notice those little details. We believe that much of what Mark gathered together under inspiration of the Holy Ghost to comprise and compile his gospel was probably the first-hand narrative of Peter. Mark and Peter were close. We find uh, different occasions where they were together. Of course, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, just as uh, Paul was to the Gentiles, and Peter was the pillar of the church at Jerusalem, and that church oftentimes met in the uh, mother of John Mark's house. Uh, They would gather. Evidently, she had a big old house, big enough to have church in, amen? And they they would gather in that house and have church. And Peter and John Mark were very close with each other. And there are certain details that are uh, given in Mark's account that could only have come from Peter. Certain things that only Peter could have possibly known. When we consider this, it is vastly important, as we have read this resurrection narrative, to consider the addition of two words that are not found in any other gospel narrative of the resurrection. The women come to the tomb. They find that the stone has been rolled away. They find the angels present there. The angels uh, speak to them, say, Fear not, I know who you're looking for. I know who you seek. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, uh, which was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And then they say this. They say, He's gone before you into Galilee. Go and wait for Him there as He told you that He would meet you in that place. But when they do that, there's an interesting thing that they say that only Mark gives us. They say to go tell His disciples in two little words of profound importance. They say, and Peter. How interesting that is. Uh, for two reasons. One, because Peter was a disciple. Peter was a disciple. Why the redundancy? Except there's a special message here found for Peter. But then I believe we gain a little insight when we consider what Peter had been through in the past four or five days. People have said before, and I, I could probably agree with this, that if you could somehow sever the person of Jesus Christ away from the gospel narrative, then you would basically find it to be a bunch of stories about Peter. For he takes the prominent role uh, beyond Jesus Christ. He, he is the person that is the central figure. I think part of the reason for that is because he is a loudmouth. Amen? God tends to call loudmouths into the ministry. Amen? And uh, I guess because they've just got no shame about them. But Peter was this fella. I mean, Peter was the guy that his, his foot spent more time in his mouth than it did in his shoe. If there was something done to say, Peter was going to say it. If there was something dumb to do, Peter was going to do it. You remember I told you a second ago, we think they're so different from us. Sometimes they're not so different from us. If there was something dumb to do, Peter was going to do it. And if you go to chapter 15 of the book of Mark, you'll find the narrative concerning the crucifixion. And Peter is not really found in that narrative at all. But if you go to the chapter prior to that, to chapter 14, you'll find Peter is just popping up all over the place in chapter number 14. And we have an interesting story about his 
fall, if you wish to call it that, his uh, moral or, or faith lapse that takes place, whatever you choose to call it, about some difficulties that Peter endured. So now I want to do, I want to do something a little different. I'm going to give you a few things that we see happen to Peter, and then I'm going to give you a real quick message about why God said it in this way. Look back at chapter number 14. I want you to notice seven things that Peter had done in the past few days. Now, most of us, uh, we would like and hope to think that we could go our entire life without ever denying Christ. Hopefully, at least we'd go maybe a decade without ever doing that. Hopefully, maybe we could at least go, you know, maybe five years or maybe a year or a few months. Or we might even be in a situation where we know we can only go a few weeks, we fear. But Peter, in a short period of time, he goes from a pinnacle of faith to the absolute lowest point is an entire life. And there are a few things that happen. I want you to look at verse 27 with me of Mark chapter 14. Look what it says in verse number 27. It says, And Jesus saith unto them, He's speaking to His disciples, they're on their way down to the Mount of Olives. They've left the upper room in the Last Supper. Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of Me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. This is where he had prophesied he would do that. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise, also said they all. I want you to notice the first thing that he did is he swore on the walk that they were taking down to the Mount of Olives. He said, Lord, I will never deny you. He had promised Christ that though every single person there... And, and you know, you imagine they may have taken some offense at that because they all in turn begin to say themselves the very same thing. Because Peter looks around at that group and he says, I don't know about everyone else, but Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll never walk away from you. I will never make that kind of mistake. I will never in any way bring shame to your name or to who you are. Lord, promise you this. I promise that I would die before I would turn my back on you. Let me tell you something. It behooves us to just say this at this point. But for the grace of God... Go I. You better be careful with the things that you say. Oh, it's easy when the bank account has a little money in it, and it's easy when your health is is fair to middling. It's easy when uh, you you know your kids are kind of doing right, and it's easy when everything your marriage is doing okay. But you see, here's the problem: from where Peter was standing, he didn't think he'd ever do it, but he couldn't imagine where he was going to be sitting later on in the night. The reality is this, it is within every one of us to turn our back on the Son of God. I don't care who you are. I didn't say to give up your salvation. It's not like you're even holding on to your salvation. I didn't say to lose your salvation because you're not the one that is keeping it. God's keeping it. We're kept by the power of God through faith. But I'm saying this, the ability to turn around and walk away from the Son of God when things get tough and when things get difficult. We've had people, and you know people, you've known people in this church in my time, you've known people in this church long before I ever got here, you've known people in other churches that you looked at them and you thought, now they'll be here a hundred years from now, and they weren't there a hundred days from then. People that you said it would never be them, or maybe you've said this about yourself at some time, you've said it would never be me. 
Though anybody and everybody else would turn on you, Lord, I would never do that. Boy, it'll never be me that gets out of church. Boy, it'll never be me that walks out on my family. Boy, it'll never be me that treats someone that way. Well, we should all hope that we would not do those things, but it would behoove us to all keep in mind that the people that do those things are just flesh and bone. And they're made out of the same stuff that you and I are made out of. He had sworn on the walk. He said, Lord, I'm never, I'm never going to betray you. But notice the next thing that happens. Look down at verse number 33. Christ says uh, this in uh, verse number 33. It says, And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. He went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping. And saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. We see that Peter swore on the walk down that he never turned, but we find that he slumbered in the garden when it came time to watch and pray. I wonder if any of us have ever found ourselves asleep on God. I wonder if any of us have ever gotten a situation where uh, God looked to us to obey, to walk with Him, and we're a little slow in our obedience, and we were slumbering at the opportunity. I know I can look at times in my life where God has given me an open door to be a witness for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I was too wrapped up with my issues to be a witness. I'm just confessing. I'm not talking about you. If you think I'm talking about you, maybe the Holy Ghost is talking about you. I'm talking about me. I've had times in my life where God gave me an open door with someone. I had the opportunity to be a witness to that person. But I was too wrapped up in my piddly little drama of what was going on in my life. Times when the Lord said, watch ye and pray, but He found me sleeping. Times when I should have been on fire, but I was found asleep in the bed. Times when I... Let me tell you something. Time is short. Jesus is coming soon. We better get busy. Because one of these days, the trumpet will sound. And whether we've been asleep spiritually or not, it'll be wake-up time then. We'll be caught up out of this world. And our opportunities to live for Him are going to be gone. All the excuses won't matter. You'll have excuses, just like I will, just like everybody will, I guess, of why you didn't and why you didn't and why you didn't. But you see, if we'd wake up and realize what time it is, that the time is nigh, it'd cause us to live in a different way. Because the reality is you may not, you think you've got a hundred years, but you may not have a hundred hours. You think you've got all the time in the world, but you're not promised tomorrow. Neither am I, neighbor. So we better be ready. We better be waking up and we better be getting busy. We see that he swore in the garden, or swore on the walk. We see he slumbered in the garden. Then look at the next few verses. Look down at verse number 46 and verse number 47. Now, Judas has come with the band of, of uh, people that are going to take away the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says this in verse 46, And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
Now, were it left up to Peter's narrative, we would not know who did this, but John ratted him out. <laughs> because in John's gospel, but Matthew didn't tell anybody, Luke didn't, but in John's gospel, I kind of get the feeling that John and Peter were sort of close. You know, they were together on that resurrection morning, and uh, they're sort of the antithesis of each other's personalities. Uh, I mean, if John is, is meek and mild and quiet and unassuming, Peter is everything but that. And uh, they, I guess they say opposites attract. They seem to have a friendship one with another. And so John rats him out. And John alone names this as being Peter that took such rash and violent action. I'd say, number one, he swore in the, on the walk down. He slumbered in the garden. But uh, we see, number three, he slashed out at a bystander. Now, I don't believe... Now, you can believe anything that you want about this. You'll answer the Lord same as I. But I don't believe he is aiming for a fellow's ear. Amen. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, Peter was not a swordsmith. Peter was a fisherman. And I don't think that he, with delicate precision, grabbed that sword and said, I'm going to cut off that boy's ear. I don't think that's what he said. I don't think he was swinging for his ear. I think he was swinging for his head. And I think the reason why, if I had to guess, is probably because this boy, uh, by the name of Malchus, stood between Peter and Judas. And probably Peter said to himself, he knew who Judas was. For three and a half years they had walked together, had lived together. And when the Son of God says, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of God, the Son of Man with a kiss? Peter knew. Peter was right there. He heard what he said. He knew in that moment that Judas was the Judas. (laughs) I believe he took that heavy sword and he swung it with all of his might and all of his fierce rage. And in the process, this fellow, he's a servant of the high priest. Very likely, that guy didn't even want to be there. But he was dragged into the middle of what was going on, and he cut that fellow's ear off. Well, we know that the Son of God goes and heals that man's ear. Man, what a blessing it is to know uh, that folks that have been hurt so bad that they've lost their ability to hear, that the Son of God, the balm of Gilead, can mend that ear and make them hear again the precious truth of what Christ has done for them. But it teaches me this, that, you know, sometimes when we get hasty and rash, other folks get in the way and get hurt. Do you know that at this moment, had Christ not healed this man's ear, they would have had all the legal grounds that they needed to crucify him, not for being the Son of God, but for being an insurrectionist and a promoter of violence? You understand that in this moment, Peter risked everything because he got in the flesh. Man, what a picture of how you and I are sometimes. We live, we have a testimony. Everybody has a testimony. It may be a good one, it may be a bad one, but every one of us, if we claim the name of Christ, we have a testimony. Every one of us, somebody, every one of us is the only Christian somebody in our life knows. And what they believe about Christ is defined by who and what we are and how we behave. And how quickly we can, in a moment, just get in the flesh, get in a rage, Start swinging the sword without paying attention, and we're in risk of, you know what we do? We're in risk of giving them cause to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but if I had been that fellow there that day, and I had been hearing about this Jesus fellow for, for, you know, a few years now, and I was trying to make up my mind, and one of his buddies cut my ear off, I don't think I would be very warm to the idea of getting to know this Jesus fella. In fact, had it not been for Christ placing the ear back on, he would have had every reason to turn around and walk away. And you know what he could have said? He could have said, if that's what a follower of Jesus is, 
I don't want any part of it. And could anyone have blamed him? Oh, my, I wonder how many people look at our lives and can say, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with that. And they'd have every good reason to say it. We see that he slashed out at a bystander, and Jesus heals the man, puts his ear back on. I want you to notice a fourth thing, verse number 50. Now, you've got to remember how this began. He swore on the way down to the garden, I'll never turn my back on you. Verse 50 says, and they all forsook him and fled. You know what he did? He scattered just like the rest of them. When it really came down to it, he had his fair share of yellow coward in him like everyone else did. And when things got difficult, he turned and ran just like the rest. Evidently, it pained him in his heart because he does turn around and he does follow. But look at verse number 54. The Bible says this, and Peter followed him. Notice the next two words, afar off, even unto the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself with the fire. Well, I wonder how many of us have been guilty after we've scattered, after we've ran, after we've forsook him. We get back in, but when we get back in, we don't get in the way we used to be in. Oh, man, I, Lord, if you want me to. When we get back in, we don't get in the way we used to be in. Something happens. Somebody hurts their feelings. You've seen it, brother. You've seen it happen to people in, in church. You've been in enough churches. Other people in this room, you've been in enough church. Somebody gets hurt. Somebody just gets lazy. Somebody just decides they've got something better to do. And folks, I'm talking about folks that used to be in. All of a sudden, they get out. And then when they get back in, they don't get in the way they used to be. Used to be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, serving, faithful, on fire for Christ. And then when they get back in, it's just maybe a little Sunday morning only every now and then. You know what he did? He slowed in his journey. He ran, and when he came back, he followed, but he didn't follow the way he had been following. When he was following in the garden, he was close enough to hear the personal, private conversation between Christ and Judas. But now when he follows, he follows afar off. Boy, I've been guilty of that at times. You know, slow obedience is disobedience. If you don't, if you, if you think it, look at Jonah. Jonah did obey, finally. <laughs> finally, after he had to go through the whale's belly and, pro- and, and in my opinion, probably die. He, he said, he talked about it being in the belly of hell. After all that, jo- oh, he finally obeyed, <laughs> but he had to pay a dear price for it. Peter followed, he just followed a little slower this time. And you know what you find? You find that the, the closer Christ gets to the cross, the farther Peter gets from Christ. The more difficult it becomes, the more prying eyes that are watching. You know why? Because there's something to be said for being all in. Right? There's something. I want to be that kind. I want to be all in. I don't want to float around on the edge of devotion or, and dedication. Just, just go ahead and let me plunge all in. And if they nail him to a cross, they can string me up to. Let me just go ahead and get all in. Peter used to be all in. But you see, something happened when he forsook him and fled. You know what happened? In a legal sense, he now had grounds to claim that he was not part of that band and part of that group. And you know, that's what happens to Christians. When they get out, now all of a sudden they go into hiding, you know? I'm reminded of what happened when Jonathan and his armor bearer go down and begin to fight the Philistines in First Samuel chapter 14. 
And the Bible says that when they saw that bravery of Jonathan and his, and his armor bearer, that all of a sudden all these folks, the, the army just started showing up. And I don't mean the army that was on the hillside under, under the uh, palm tree at, at Gibeon, but I'm talking about folks started coming out from behind enemy lines. Folks started to come out from behind the caves. Folks started to come out that had been... Where had they been? They had been in hiding. They had been in hiding. we got a lot of Christians in hiding nowadays. There's a lot of Christians that at your workplace, you're in hiding. You're in hiding. You don't want them to find out that you're a Christian because then you're going to be accountable for something. Some of us, we've got friends that we're in hiding with. We don't want them to know, man, what we really believe because if they find that out, they're going to ask why we're not being more faithful. They're going to ask why we're not living right. Or they're going to ask why we're not witnessing to them, being a testimony to them. You know, once you get that grounds to turn around, you've scattered and you've separated yourself, and now all of a sudden you can go in hiding. You know what you do when you follow? You follow afar off. We see that he's slowed in his journey. We see in the next few verses, look at verse number 66, the Bible says this, And as Peter was beneath in the palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. He went out into the porch, and the cock crew. And a maid saw him again, and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth hitherto. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. We see that he slandered by the fire. We see, you know, you run with that crowd. I was, I was teaching out of Galatians this morning. And you know what Paul says to the church at Galatia? He says, they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. You know what he's saying to the church at Galatia? The, 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 the Judaizers had come in, and they had said, you're going to have to start keeping the Old Testament law. He's saying this. He's saying, they're fine with you as long as you're in tow. But the second that you are not in tow with them, they would zealously affect you. They'd exclude you. You know, isn't that how the world is? You know, everybody's tolerant of everything except intolerance. Right? Everybody, I mean, you, you, everybody, you can have an opinion just as long as it don't upset nobody else's opinion. And that's the world that we live in. You know, you sit around the world's fire, eventually they're going to start cursing Jesus and they're going to wonder why you're not. They're going to wonder, oh, it may not be all that way. I mean, it may, they're going to sit around the fire and they're, they're, they're going to be passing the, the lick around. They're going to wonder why you don't drink. They're going to be passing the drugs around. They're going to be wondering why you don't partake. They're, they're going to be laughing at the expense of the Savior. They're going to wonder why you don't laugh. They're going to be cursing and taking His name in vain. They're going to wonder why you don't do that. You stay around that fire long enough, you'll find your, you'll start acting just like them. Oh, wouldn't be me. Wouldn't be me. I'd never do that. Yeah, I remember hearing a fellow say that one time. Yeah, about 20 verses earlier, I remember hearing a fellow say that one time. And by the way, about two hours earlier in, in the chronology of events. But here he is slandering by the fire. Notice the seventh thing, and, and then we can preach. Amen? Look at verse number 72. In the second time the cock crew, Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him before the cock crow twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. The Bible says, And when he thought thereon, he wept. We find that Peter also sorrowed over his sins. Other gospel writers say that he went out and wept bitterly, but it's almost as though Peter, lest that be taken as some sign of, uh, of noble humility, he omits that description. He just says he wept. 
He describes Himself as broken and contrite and ruined by the sin that He had partook in. Boy, it's amazing what two or three hours can do in a man's life. He went from being the most ardent, devoted uh, follower of Jesus Christ. He was never going to turn. He was never going to mess up. He was never going to turn back. Till now He sits weeping over the brokenness of His treacherous sin. What will Jesus say about it all? In fact, Luke tells us that when the cock crew, that uh, he, he turned and he looked and locked eyes with the Savior. That's what it says. It says that Jesus looked upon him. And when he did, it was like the dagger was twisted in his very soul. And he understands that what Jesus said about him had come absolutely true. What would it mean for Peter? You know, maybe you're here tonight. And uh, you probably wouldn't ascribe to all seven of those things I mentioned, but maybe there's one or two. Maybe you're one of them that's followed far off for a little while. Maybe you're one of them that's slandered by the world's fires. Maybe you're one of them that's been in hiding and in, in secret. Maybe you're one of them that's scattered. Maybe you're one of them that's, that's hurt your testimony because you've lashed out at someone and gotten the flesh. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're one of them that swear, I'll never do those things. Can I give you a simple word of encouragement tonight? And Peter. After all that Peter had done, Christ says, and Peter. What does this teach us about the Son of God? I would give you three things and I'll hush and I'm done. I'd say, number one, it teaches us that forgetting is impossible. (laughs) No doubt Peter probably thought, well, that's it. I'm done for. Surely God will cast me off. Surely God will forget about me. For three and a half years I've walked with Him. And and, and He's loved me and He's cared for me. He's healed my family. He's put food in my belly. I've seen Him raise the dead. I've seen Him heal the sick. I've seen Him feed the multitude. And all of that time. And now it means nothing. Surely God will forget me. You can go through the Psalms and you'll find times that the psalmist laments that way. He says, surely God has forgot about me. And I'd love, listen, it'd be a lot more comfortable to be carnal enough to say I've never felt like God has forgotten me. But let me go ahead and just be spiritual enough to be honest with you and admit there's times when it sure feels like God has forgotten all about me. I know that He hasn't. I'm aware that is not the case. But there are times in my life when it feels like there's a mile of concrete uh, between me and the throne room of grace. And I pray and I beg God for something. There's times when I read my Bible and it seems dry and dead. Times when the prayer calls, it seems like a drudgery. Times when even preaching feels like a labor and like a toil. And in those times, it's easy to feel like God maybe has forgotten about us. Maybe times after we've sinned and messed up, And it has literally just sucked the joy and life out of our Christian wall. Let me tell you something. You let sin in your life, it'll rob you of your happiness and your joy. There's no one as unhappy as a Christian out of the will of God. There's no one in the world. You take the most rotten, wicked, vile offender that has ever walked this earth, and they'll have a song sooner than a Christian that's out of the will of God. You know why? Because the chastening hand of God is not on them, but it'll be on you. And the joy has been robbed of your salvation. You're miserable. Everything's a drudgery. The church is a dreaded place. The Bible is a dead book. The prayer closet is a labor and a a tedious venture. And you just feel like God has forgotten about it. No doubt Peter felt that way. I don't know what Peter expected when he went to the grave that day. 
He did not expect Jesus to have risen. We know that because the, uh, John tells us that when John saw the linen clothes lying, that he believed, but Peter had not yet believed. Peter had not yet acknowledged and, and accepted that, that fact. I do not know what Peter was expecting that day. Maybe just, just, just carnal curiosity had brought him there because the women had said that Jesus had risen. But when he gets word that Jesus is alive, surely there must have been terror in his heart when he thought about the reckoning that it would be. Maybe the only comfort he had gotten is that though he had broke Jesus' heart, that very heart would give out and quit beating not long after. But now Jesus is risen. There'll be a reckoning. He'll have to meet Him face to face. What will it mean? Surely He'll cast Him off. In fact, maybe, maybe what He had hoped for is that God would just forget all about Him so He wouldn't have to face His sin. But we find that forgetting is impossible. There's a beautiful Old Testament passage that relates this truth in the book of Isaiah. Let me read it to you in Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. The Bible says this, But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. That's what Israel had said. Surely God's forgotten me. But God says this, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. You know what God says? We say, God, have you forgotten about me? God says, listen, you may forget about me, but I'll never forget about you. It's interesting that it says that their names are graven on his hands. We know this, that the only remnant of this world's sorrow and suffering that will endure throughout eternity is the pierced nail-scarred hands of the Son of God. And when God looks at those hands, He has a constant reminder that He loves you, that He cares for you, that He's bought you, that He's purchased you. And listen, you may have wondered, you may have strayed, you may have strayed a little ways, or you may have strayed a long ways, but however far that you've gone, God has not forgotten about you. For on the very resurrection morning, He says, Go tell my disciples and Peter. We learn that forgetting is impossible, but we also understand that forgiveness is available. You know why he said, and Peter? Because there was a relationship to continue. We think of it like, well, I've messed up. God must be done with me. But God knew you was going to mess up before you ever messed up. When God, when God, what do you think God for when he saved you? He paid for your sins. He paid your debt. He wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have done that if He expected you to live in perfection. There would have been no need for it. But in doing it, it is an understanding, it is an implication that God knows that we are but dust, that we are but, but feeble mankind, but flesh and bone. I don't believe God is permissive towards our sin, but I do believe God is realist about our sin. I believe He understands God doesn't want us to sin. What did John say? He said, these things write unto you that you sin not. That's God. You want to know what God's position is on sin? Don't do it. That's God's position of, of, on sin. Not do it, not occasionally do it, not sometimes things happen. God's position on sins, don't do it. These things write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation. He is the payment. He is the forgiveness. He is the way that is made. He is the heart of God that beats for us. He is the satisfied holiness of a thrice holy God. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
You know what it told to Peter? It told Peter that God wasn't done with him yet. If God was done with him, he would have said, Go tell my disciples, but not Peter. God don't waste anybody's time. Somebody say amen to that. He wouldn't have asked Peter to come down to Galilee, except he had a word of encouragement and forgiveness for Peter. But you know what Peter had to do? He had to go to Galilee. What if he had taken the road that Judas had taken? What if Peter, in his despair, said, God, never forgive me, and went out and hung himself like, like Judas did? You know what Peter had to do? He had to believe his word. He had to go down to Galilee to where Jesus was to find forgiveness. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, if we confess our sins. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what it tells me? You may have messed up, but guess what? Forgiveness is available. It's available. I didn't say forgiveness is automatic. I said forgiveness is available. You've got to come to Him. But guess what? If you'll come to Him, He'll forgive you. And in doing so, He is both faithful and just in forgiving you. It tells us that forgetting is impossible and forgiveness is available. But I'd suggest to you this, that it tells us that failure is not terminal. Peter had messed up. But that didn't mean that it had to bury him. Peter had made a mistake. He'd made lots of mistakes. Peter's whole life basically is riddled with mistakes, kind of like mine, probably a little like yours too. He had messed up. He hadn't messed up a little. He had messed up a lot. I mean, for a man that just got through saying, I'll never, I'll die before I'll deny you. And before he ever denied him, he, he did about six or seven other things that were slip-ups and mess-ups and sins. And in a period of three hours, he's gone from standing in a group of, of, of men that God would use to shape the world and saying, I'm better than all of this lot because I'll never deny you, to sitting alone, weeping and broken over his sin. Boy, I'm sure it felt like he ought to just hang it all up, don't you? You ever sinned so bad you just couldn't see how to move past it? You ever messed up so 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 bad you just couldn't couldn't see how to move past it? I'm sure Peter felt that way. I'm sure he felt that way. Where do I even go from here? You go to Jesus. Where do I even go from here? You go to Jesus. You go to Galilee. Why Galilee? Because that's where Jesus is. We don't go to Galilee today. Why? Because Jesus isn't in Galilee. <laughs> Where do we go? We go to the throne room of grace, for the Son of God is seated at the right hand of, of God the Father. And He ever liveth to make intercession for you and for me, for us. See, here's the thing. This don't have to bury you. I was talking to a, a couple, counseling with a couple, and there had been a mistake was made. And uh, hurt, trust shattered. I was counseling with them, and I told them, I said, let me tell you something. I've I've sat and I've counseled with people that have done much darker deeds than have been permitted and has been performed here. I looked at that couple, and I said this. I said, "If, if this buries your marriage, it's because you've allowed it to, not because it has to. I've counseled people. This is the honor. You know, I'm 28. But let me tell you something. When you, when you hang out your sign as a pastor, folks find you. <laughs> I've counseled, not millions, but it feels like it sometimes, of people. I've counseled people that had problems so bad that I just sat there and wrenched my hands and said, 
I don't see a way past this. I don't see how they can ever get over it. I don't, there's been such betrayal. There's been such heart. I don't see how they'll ever get past this. And sitting there with that couple, with this slight infraction, it was a betrayal. Let me tell you something. All sin is a betrayal. <laughs> and there they are, just broken, man. I mean, broken. What do we do, preacher? What do we do? This doesn't have to bury your marriage. And if it does, it's because you've let it. Let me tell you something. I don't know what you've done that may have offended a holy God. I don't know what you've done that may have damaged your relationship with Christ. You've probably done things. I know I've sure done my share of things. But that doesn't have to bury your walk with Christ. And if it does, it's because you let it. Not because it has to. You see, the price has been paid. The way has been made. The priest is seated at the right hand of the Father. All provisions have been made. And all that is left is for you to come to Him. And He'll forgive you. And He'll restore you. And He'll heal you. And He'll put the balm of Gilead on the brokenness of your life. If we confess our sins. (laughs) Failure doesn't have to be terminal. I know lots of folks that mess up and just walk away. Oh, they still belong to God, but they just walk away from their their life with Christ. They get out of church, they quit reading their Bible, they quit praying. They walk away from the life that God has called them to. All over something that Jesus already died for. All over something that Jesus already died for. It's foolishness. Failure doesn't have to be terminal. It will be if you let it. If you stub up in pride and say, I'll not come to Him, then it will be terminal. It won't happen in a moment. But it'll eat away. It'll eat away. But guess what? If you'll come to Him tonight, you know He'll forgive you. And He'll restore you. In your life, what you cannot do for yourself, if you'll just come to Him.